0: welcome to risking enchantment a podcast about art beauty and the catholic faith hosted by rachel sherlock welcome to risking enchantment for this episode you've got me the host rachel sherlock And my guest this week is Maria Conley. Woohoo! It's lovely to have you back.
1: I'm very excited to be talking about today's theme.
0: Yeah, we're talking about women in Tolkien. Yeah. And it's very exciting, but I will preface this by saying, I think this is the most perilous situation that we've ever recorded a podcast, because... (laughs) In the great aspirations of being a pro-family and pro-life podcast, we are working around Maria's hectic motherly schedule, and so her young daughter is asleep downstairs having a nap.
1: <laughs> so we'll see if our voices wake her and yeah. she stirs in the deep. <laughs> Hopefully she won't. Drums. Hopefully this will go very, very smoothly. No drumming. No yeah, no bumps. drums, drums, yeah. drums
0: in the deep. So this is very exciting. I don't think I've ever had such an adrenaline rush. I was essentially kind of lurking around outside... And Maria's home. And then as soon as she was ready, she was like, Go, go, go. Come. <laughs> so yeah, we're gonna talk about the women in Lord of the Rings, which as I, I said this to a friend this morning and he was like, Oh, so it's gonna be a short
1: podcast. <laughs> oh so. I hate that stereotype, <laughs> and hopefully this podcast will do something to remove <laughs> which, it. Yeah, because from
0: my perspective, I've been stressing out being like, How are we gonna fit this all into an hour? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so Rachel comes in, she's like, You can't talk about this, you can't talk about that, you can only talk about three things.
0: Exactly. There's a lot to talk about. Well, that's it. So we are going to... We're going to talk mainly about Lord of the Rings. I'm going to mention one thing from The Hobbit. I'm happy for us to kind of incorporate elements from the Lord of the Rings films, but it probably won't be a surprise to most listeners. We're going to leave The Hobbit films aside, at least for today. And we are going to draw some elements from the Silmarillion, but I think I was quite conscious. I adore Lord of the Rings, and I think it's amazing. The thing I don't like is the kind of attitude that says, well, you only understand... The Lord of the Rings, unless you've read The Unfinished Tales, The Silmarillion, The Tales From the Perilous Realm, everything. Unless you're a scholar, basically.
1: And that's, it's ridiculous because, I mean, The Lord of the Rings was the most popular book. It was voted the most popular book by the English public Really? For years and years running. And, Amazing. And that just goes to show it's not a book. Okay, it does have a lot of names and they're all in different languages. Yeah. And it can be a <laughs> bit complicated at times to follow everything. But it's a book that speaks to every heart. And it's a book that really moves every person, be they Catholic, not Catholic. At least a lot of people. Most people that I know that have read it have yeah. been really, really inspired by it. Um, Just because of the, the themes that are running through it that are so human and so universal. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we don't need to know... You know all your elf types. Or yeah, names. we're not going to be
0: drilling people on family trees and <laughs>
1: Rachel and I don't know them.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, I know we were we were confessing of like rereading the, the...
1: freaking out last <laughs> night, trying to like re- reread the Silmarillion in it's entirety. So,
0: yeah. so we are going to there's a, particularly in one section we're going to I think hopefully we'll get the time but we're definitely hoping to talk about Beren and Luthien which is one of the most important stories from the Silmarillion um, and just
1: for a quick explanation the Silmarillion is the kind of backstory or the the, the book- history. Yeah, the book of history that sets the ground for the Lord of the Rings. So it's like a collection of short stories that Tolkien wrote. Mm-hmm. And Baron and Lúthien would be the ancestors of the character Arwen, if yeah. you remember her, the elf lady in the Lord of the Rings. Yes.
0: Yeah, so we're going to be talking about them in that context. But for the most part, we're just going to be focusing on the Lord of the Rings itself and what the female characters in the Lord of the Rings can show us just from their presence in those books. The only other thing I wanted to kind of touch on before we launch in is that just to place this in a kind of Catholic context because obviously this is a podcast as I mean I honestly I probably could have very easily set up a Tolkien podcast but uh, (laughs) this is actually a Catholic podcast and in some ways it's kind of straightforward in the sense that Tolkien was a Catholic, and not only that, but in I think he's recognised by quite a number of people as, as a Catholic mystic. He had a really profound understanding of both his faith and the human heart, and I think that's why this story and these stories have been so long-lasting and touched so many people, is because of their really profound understanding. And so the women of Tolkien and his writing, they have something really profound to tell us, and they share not the whole truth, but at least a truth about femininity and the dignity of women in the world and their place in the world and so like we mentioned earlier the lord of the rings and all of tolkien's work gets fairly dismissed out of hand as at least if not misogynistic at least not feminist because to be fair the women are kind of few and far between someone mentioned to me recently i think there's something like only four women named in the hobbit uh which is pretty intense but to kind of talk about first of all why that was fitting and right for those books because as much as we're going to talk about the role of women I also would disagree I, I like I said it's not the whole truth about femininity and I think it's wonderful to have writers who have a more female presence in their books that or maybe a female driven book I think those are so wonderful and beautiful like as a kid the fact that Lucy was the main character of the the line the witch in the wardrobe was so powerful to me but i will say i also certainly never felt growing up or now that i don't connect to stories because they're not about women
1: right because you can have the the exact same problem that you have um you know you can have the the imbalance on the opposite side you mm-hmm. can have a story that's only about women that doesn't you know, recognize the truth of, of men and manhood and their place in the world. And mm-hmm. I'm not say I, I I completely believe that we do need to have more stories that are full of women, but that doesn't make the stories that are full of men any less valuable. Yeah, um, and
0: I don't think these stories would be improved by no. adding X number of female characters. They would be a bit
1: odd as well, because they would be kind of anachronistic. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. The Lord of the Rings is not set in any time in human history well that's Mm -hmm. debatable but it's not set in in our world our modern world it's set in a time of warriors in a time of war in a time where um evil forces are trying to destroy the known world the civilized world and it's the men who are going to war um who are i mean they're fighting with swords and spears and shields and like i mean all of us would Recognize that most women are physically weaker in some ways than most men. So mm-hmm. it makes sense from the point of view of it being a book about war, yeah about great war.
0: Um. And even if you're looking to the sort of literary traditions that he's drawing on in order to write those books, something I was thinking about yesterday, which is about, like I said, The Hobbit has almost no women in it, but it was drawing from uh and we talked about and i'm going to bring in a quote that we mentioned in the podcast on the ones a future king but the romance in that sense of like the the kind of adventure story but it is that adventure story which ultimately uh, often isn't really about characters so if you think of the hobbit the only person who has any real character story is bilbo like you've got an I know when they were doing the Hobbit films that was their big problem, which is that you've got these thirteen dwarves and almost no all of all of them are identical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, even their names sound pretty identical. Um, <laughs> you know. Gandalf is, is is present and we love him, but he doesn't necessarily have any character moments that he, like, grows, or, like, in the in the Lord of the Rings... He's, a, he's a prop for the main character. Yeah, he's exactly. A, he's a
1: guide, or... A... And
0: even Thorin, he has his, like, stubbornness, and, like, his desires, and he kind of relents in the end, and reconciles, and all of those things. But those are, like, a couple of pages in the whole story. So, you know, even if... I will say, even if we did have female characters in The Hobbit, they probably wouldn't be very fleshed out, either, just because nobody is. But then when you move into... The Lord of the Rings—it's not the same kind of literary tradition that it's drawing from. It's much more drawing from the epics and the sagas and the epic poetry of Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Norse and some of the elements of even like Greek and and Roman myth. But because that's what Tolkien
1: was familiar with. That's yeah. what he taught in Oxford. Um, that's what he studied. That that was his whole mm-hmm. his whole mythos is supported by those ancient myths and. To be, like, you were talking earlier to me about the idea of the shield maiden. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Yeah, it certainly is present
0: that, that especially in Old Norse, not quite as much in Old English, but there are warrior women, there are Valkyrie, there are women who are not motherly. Although I will say, pretty much everyone who's in Old Norse myths, especially in the kind of god myths, are all pretty reprehensible. It's a little bit like Greek (laughs) myths. Nobody wants to be those people. Watch out for Hera, right? (laughs) Um, But there is this desire constantly to reimagine what those cultures thought about women, but ultimately it fails every time. And uh, like I said, I studied this in my master's and I still see my Professors tweeting about it and getting on online and being like, I think there was some article recently which was like, oh, there was warrior women, and she was like, I like, I hate to break it to you, I wish that there was this empirical fact that we could draw from, but it's like the people who try and prove that the Amazons were real—they're trying w- too
1: hard to kind of bolster modern feminist theories. Yeah, and it, it's, it's in very, the light of the past, which yeah, like you can't do. You have to look at the past as itself. Like. Yeah,
0: and it's anachronistic, but that doesn't mean that women were always like that stereotype of a 1950s housewife going back the whole way like they did they did have their own space which might be actually quite different to what we imagine but that doesn't mean it's our idealized version of a you know a game of thrones style warrior princess type thing but also the other thing i was going to say is not only is he drawing from these literary traditions but he's drawing from them to tell his own story and his own I'm not saying he... He was very careful not to... The Lord of the Rings are not an autobiography in disguise at all.
1: Or an allegory, um, like but, the Narnia books. Yes.
0: But he is drawing from his own experiences. He was in World War One, and he had a close group of friends called the Inklings afterwards who were his kind of world in a way, and it was a group of men. And so he's trying to say something about... The camaraderie and the experience of the men.
1: fellowship, of male friendship. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. And that isn't to say that there wasn't a powerful female presence in his life, particularly. we'll we'll talk about his wife in one second, but his mother, Mabel, she was the one who converted to Catholicism and she was kind of cast off by her family because of that. And he saw her as a martyr. She died because she developed uh, several illnesses because she was working in very lowly positions. And after the death of his father, she had no no one to support her two sons. Absolutely. And And so she was a very powerful figure in, in his imagination and in his past. And then his wife, I mean, it's... One of the crazy things about Tolkien is he writes these incredible stories, but in some ways his life was such an incredible story, and we've got that Tolkien movie coming out soon, which I'm very excited for, although I keep saying every time I see it, I'm like... I know they're going to skip all of the, Catholic, <laughs> the Catholicism stuff because it's... Well,
1: who knows? I, I who recently knows? got a children's picture book about his life. Yeah. Um, it's called John Ronald's Dragons. And it's I was so impressed with it because it doesn't skip the Catholicism part. Yes. It's a completely secular children's book, but it has a whole page on the relationship that he had with the priest who adopted him and his mm. brother after his mother died. Yeah, And about how the, the artwork in the churches and his, his faith kind of influenced... That's so good. His idealism. So I can Uh, still hold out hope. You can, you can. I shouldn't despair. Anyone who's honestly going to look at the life of
0: Tolkien has to include Mm -hmm. that aspect. He's a daily
1: mass goer for years and years. and an adoration goer. Like, I mean, you can't skip that. It's
0: a huge part and we're going to come into how his Catholic faith informed how he portrayed women but th- he has this incredible love story where they were separated because his adopted priest told him he couldn't yeah and uh, and then he writes to her on midnight of his 21st birthday thing. when he comes of age she was and,
1: already engaged to someone yeah, else they yeah. had met when she uh, when tolkien was much younger i think he was 19 or something when he, he was he, younger than that yeah, yeah and he he waited for her but he wasn't able to contact her because he was obedient to yeah. his adopted father
0: and, so it, it's yeah. such a wonderful story but at the same time I think when you hear things like that, you can really idealise them. But the other thing that you hear about their relationship is that they, like, bickered constantly. They had real trouble. She didn't really like Oxford. They moved to Bournemouth, where she was able to have a much stronger social life, but he really missed Oxford, and they had to make all of these sacrifices. They had six children together, which was six? Five? Sorry, anyway. You can check that. (laughs) Well, there's John, Michael, Christopher, Priscilla. Is there someone else? No, you're probably right. Four, four. <laughs> but they still four kids is a lot. Yeah, <laughs> and she she had to convert to Catholicism for him, but she was she really struggled with that. So it wasn't like he lived in this happy bubble where women did exactly what he wanted and was everything to him. And you know, kind of. they had this incredible relationship where they were guessing he's like finishing each other's sentences. And... <laughs> no, it like, wasn't that. He he had real women. And also his, I was reading yesterday that like his daughter was saying that he had lots of female friends. It wasn't that he lived in this isolated bubble. And so the first quote that I'm going to pull up, which I think is really interesting, and we'll place this in a little bit of context of his writing afterwards. But um, I brought it up, like I said, in the podcast to do with the Once and future King. And it's about Tolkien's view of chivalry. So he says, the center of romantic chivalry was not God, but imaginary deities, love and the lady. It still tends to make the lady a kind of guiding star or divinity, of the old-fashioned, his divinity equals the woman he loves, the object or reason of noble conduct. This is, of course, false, and at best, make-believe. The woman is another fallen human being, with her soul in peril, but combined and harmonised with religion, it can be very noble. Then it produces what I suppose is still felt among those who retain even vestigary Christianity, to be the highest ideal of love between man and woman. Yet I still think it has dangers. It is not wholly true, and it is not perfectly theocentric. It takes, or at any rate has in the past taken, the young man's eye of women as they are, as companions in shipwreck, not guiding stars. One result is for the observation of the actual to make the young man turn cynical. To forget their desires, needs and temptations. It inculcates exaggerated notions of true love, as a fire from without, a permanent exaltation, unrelated to age, childbearing and plain life, and unrelated to will and purpose. One result of that is to make young folk look for a love that will keep them always nice and warm in a cold world, without any effort of theirs, and the incurably romantic go on looking even in the squalor of the divorce courts. Pretty strong. Yeah, and I think that comes as a real surprise to people who read Tolkien, because
1: he's so idealistic, that it's it's kind of amazing that he can see through that idealism
0: when it comes to real, actual women. Yeah, that he doesn't have, in, in his own personal view, he doesn't have that perfect idealised version of women, and that they are as much in need of Helpmates of men in order to be redeemed by God as men are of them. Mm. And I think the important context to place on this is that when he created the idea of the elven race, that they are supposed to be a heightened race. They're almost like angels. They're definitely on a higher plane than humanity. And so a lot of the women that we meet, and a lot of them are elves, do almost, in fact, I think some of them are termed that guiding star. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have any depth. Like, we're going to go into their own struggles and their own needs for redemption and for atonement and all of those things. But it does mean that they come across as these kind of perfect idealised women. And But
1: they are very different from Tolkien's
0: actual women.
1: In the yeah. sense of, like, if you look at someone like Eowyn, she's mm-hmm. very, very different, very much more flawed and, I guess, nuanced yeah. than
0: and someone like Arwen. It's um, also worth saying that this idealism in the elves also relates to the men as well. Like, right. it is the whole race. And so while it is true to say that those women are, people always say, on a pedestal, but in, in a similar way, so are the men. It's not really problematic in that sense. Yeah, it's if not It's not unbalanced. Out. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I love that quote because it really sets up that while he's writing about these idealised women, he's not coming from a deluded mindset where he thinks that that is the reality of women. Or that that's the only place women
1: have in the world or in men's lives, being kind of like a... Mm-hmm a good example or some kind of... You know, it's it's very present in... Well, maybe not so much anymore, but I think in the Victorian era and Mm -hmm. earlier, like, the woman as the...
0: Exemplar. Yeah,
1: the ideal that a lady... You could either be one of two things. You could either be a lady or a whore. There was nothing else. Yeah. Like, I mean, there was no middle ground. Like You were either this perfect paragon of every virtue yeah. and every like feminine accomplishment. Or you were
0: the mistress or the... yeah, yeah the Or you were of, just a fallen woman. You yeah. know? <laughs> so. so I think that kind of sets us up nicely. And like I said, we're on a little bit of a clock. Because <laughs> a, a beautiful non-idealized little girl is
1: <laughs> Very human indeed.
0: So we're going going to dive straight in. And so to begin with, I'm just going to talk about like I said there's almost no women in the hobbit, but the one starting point that I want to say is that because the hobbit kind of is the beginning that flows into the Lord of the Rings. And so the beginning of all of these adventures comes a description of Bilbo. And what it says is he gets his adventurous streak from his mother's side. Mm. So it's Belladonna took who is the one, and it goes through, like, the Tooks were always the wilder ones, and they the were the hobbitly
1: ones... hobbits. Yeah, exactly,
0: and they were going on adventures, and then it says, not that she went on many adventures after she became Mrs. Bungo Baggins. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> the biggest adventure I've been on lately
1: is a trip to the grocery store. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but well, that's that not true. But... It does talk about her being happy and content in that life, but yeah. that Bilbo's adventurousness does come from his mother's side, so that that beginning moment of saying that this thing where you're going to break free of your normal bounds comes from the feminine side. And it's also true for Frodo, although it's somewhat more removed. I think it's his grandmother is a Took. And so...
1: Meddlesome tooks. <laughs> yeah,
0: but it's it's always from the feminine side. So I just think that's really interesting that that's the first idea of femininity that we come across in the books.
1: Yeah, maybe relating back to Tolkien's relationship with his mother, like what all he received from his own mother, mm-hmm. um, that kind of adventurous spirit from the woman who was brave enough to leave everything, to leave her country, to leave her family, to leave her religion, her ties, mm-hmm. to embrace the adventure that is Christianity. Yeah. And it's, I mean... That's a huge legacy that she left to
0: her sons. Yeah, it is really incredible. And so that's just kind of our our first little hint. And then we're going to move into the Lord of the Rings. And I think the first and kind of abiding female figure from the Fellowship of the Ring is Galadriel. Yeah. And she's (coughs) such such an iconic figure and so powerfully written. And again, a slightly surprising one in that she's the queen. And while she is married... It's definitely her land. Yeah. You know, and that she is the most powerful the one. The Lady of the Wood. Yeah, and her characterization is so informed by, and this is where we get into Tolkien's faith, it's so informed by his view of the Virgin Mary. So, like, his own quote on Our Lady, he says, Our Lady, upon which all my own small perception of beauty, both in majesty and simplicity, is founded. That's beautiful,
1: because if you look at the character of Galadriel... Isn't that the kind of war that's going on within her? Mm-hmm. The war between majesty and simplicity? Like, yeah. She's a, a tree dweller. I mean she lives in a forest, but she's a queen of yeah. a forest. And there sense.
0: is there is that like, because they're always described as being adorned, but adorned by nature. Like, by light or yeah. star or flower. You don't or get the kind gold. of <laughs> Yeah, you don't get the kind of frills and lace of, say, like a Victorian or, or Baroque era. Yeah, <laughs> The elves have this kind of majestic simplicity to them. That comes is, from themselves almost or yeah. from the, their natural surroundings. So. Yeah. And I the one of the things that I picked out was that um, at the, one of the most important things that I kind of really came to understand when I was researching for this podcast was that uh, the story of Middle Earth is essentially kind of like a descending concentric circle. Um, And like I said, we're not going to dwell too much on the outer stories, but it is important because it does set up how these archetypes work. So you kind of have the story on the most vast term and it begins with the gods. And then the age kind of descends and it becomes the age of elves. And it doesn't have quite the scope and quite the power of the Age of Gods, but then you get the Elves, and now we're moving into the Age of Men. And it's... So you have these stories that kind of repeat the whole way down. It's almost like a long decline, which is a bit sad sounding. but, yeah. <laughs> but no, that's it, because yeah. even Galadriel talks about the long defeat. Mm-hmm. And that is the whole story, is just this one long defeat as you move from one age that gets... And it gets sort of essentially progressively worse as it gets along, but also less impressive. So as far as I know, the War of Wrath, which is in the Silmarillion seems so much bigger in scope than the War of the Ring. And it kind of goes with like um Tolkien's whole attitude towards modern
1: progress. Like he yeah. doesn't see modern progress as a good thing in a lot of ways. Like obviously there are some good things, a lot of good things about mm-hmm. modern modernity, but there's also a lot of bad things. A lot of things that have taken away our humanity and our kind of yeah. um capacity to be in touch with the noble and the true and, and let's face it, with God, right? Yeah. Like our modern world is for the most part secular. Yeah. And we may be more advanced technologically or and scientifically, but we've lost so much on a on a deeper more hum, humane level.
0: Yeah. So he's kind of
1: doing that in his stories as well, uh, yeah. I think. And but, so yeah, keep going.
0: you get these repeated tropes or like almost exactly essentially a repeated story. So we're going to talk about you were saying about Arwen being a descendant of Beren and Lúthien, but in some ways the story of Aragorn and Arwen is a microcosm of the story of Beren and Lúthien. Or even things like in Valinor you have the white and gold trees of light, and then by the time you get to the third age in The Lord of the Rings, you have like the withering tree of Gondor. Mm. So you have these kind of... The
1: the, the besieged forest of La Floria. Yeah,
0: or even you have the evil figure of Melkor from the Silmarillion, who's this and in all of the drawings, he essentially looks like Sauron. And Sauron is like... Just as Minion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Sauron is just as Minion. and there's Saur- Yeah, Sauron being the main bad guy in the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when we look at these descriptions, it often happens that you, you have one character explained in their relationship to another character. So Galadriel her patroness is Elbereth and so you're given him information about who Elbereth was and she's kind of essentially the prefiguring of Galadriel. So there's this moment in, in Shelob's lair where Frodo has been stung and it's this kind of calamitous moment and he's fading away and um, he calls out to Galadriel but then he quotes the, the lay of Elbereth because it's in relation to her. So while this is a description of Elbereth, it's also a description of Galadriel. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. So um, the quote is, Galadriel, he said faintly, and then he heard voices far off but clear. The crying of elves as they walked under the stars in the beloved shadows of the shire. And the music of elves as it came through his sleep in the hall of fire in the house of Elrond. Gilthoniel a Elbereth. And then his tongue was loosed, and he cried in a language he did not know. Uh, I, I'm, maybe I'll try to say it, but I, I don't read. Maybe I think it's Sindarian. Maybe just give
1: it in English. Yeah, well, maybe. the
0: translation is, O Elbereth, star kindler, from heaven gazing afar, to thee I cry now beneath the shadow of death. Wow. Oh, pretty... look towards me, ever white.
1: That sounds pretty Hail mary to me, well, in sounds... the shadow of death. Please. Yeah, it's yeah. the Hail
0: Holy Queen. To wow. thee do we cry, O banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning mm. and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, O oh, most gracious Advocate, the eyes of mercy towards us.
1: That is us. beautiful. I've never seen that comparison before. Yeah, and, and calling her the Ever White—like mm-hmm. talk about, you know, Our Lady's Immaculate Conception. Yeah, <laughs> right exactly. there. Like I mean, it's no. it's right
0: there. It's only in evoking these images of Mary that he's able to conjure up this figure of Galadriel who is this good and wonderful queen.
1: And coming back to that point that you were talking about earlier about the uh, idealization of women and how Tolkien uses like the elven race as kind of a higher form of women that there is something that is true in our faith and in our lives that we can idealize one woman Mm -hmm. and we should idealize her and she should be this pinnacle of perfection for us and that's such a relief as a woman. I don't know mm-hmm. about for any other women who are listening to this. But yeah, because
0: the perfect woman doesn't isn't someone on Instagram. No,
1: exactly. It's, it's the mother of yeah, God. Yeah, and she but the very fact that she exists gives me hope because it both tells me that A, I am not the perfect mm-hmm. woman and that's okay and I don't have to be her. I want to be her. I want mm-hmm. to be like her. And B, she's there. Like she I don't have to just guess what the perfect woman looks like. Like I have this ideal. I have this beautiful Advocate this beautiful mother that's listening if I need her, and she, my own personal, she loves Lair, you know, (laughs) being attacked by giant spiders.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so then, like I said, the Lord of the Rings has these prefigurings, but as Catholics, we totally see that as also happening in the Bible. So I'm going to quote from uh, another quote from Sam, but then I'm going to compare it to a quote from the Bible, which is from the Song of Solomon. But certainly, as Catholics, we understand this as meaning to evoke the future. mother of God. So when Sam's describing Galadriel to Faramir he says beautiful she is sir lovely sometimes like a great tree and flower sometimes like a white daffodown dilly small and slender like hard as diamonds soft as moonlight warm as sun cold as frost in the stars proud and far off as a snow mountain and as merry as a lass I ever saw with daisies in her hair in springtime. But that's a load of nonsense and all wide off my mark. But this kind of doubling Description where it's hard and soft or uh, warm and cold is used quite a lot in the Bible, specifically in relating to this female figure that we see as a a prefigment of Our Lady. And so the quote, it's Song of Solomon 6.10, says, Who is she that cometh forth as the morning rising? Fair as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army set in battle array. Wow. Wow.
1: It's just the contrast and, and the it's no one extreme it's it's a, the beautiful balancing mixture of the, the different types mixture. of femininity that you have to be hard mm-hmm. so you can be soft you have to be soft so you can be hard it's it's a kind of blend of strength and weakness that is particularly feminine.
0: Yeah, exactly. That it's not about, oh, she's just meek and mild.
1: Or, oh, she's just a battle axe. You know, she's both. She should be both. And her genius, her greatness lies in, in being able to balance those two things.
0: Yeah. But I think then, so that's Mary and Mary is the perfect, the immaculate, but that's actually not Galadriel. And Like I said, there's a lot of information that comes in the Silmarillion about her own temptations and her own particular failings, and those certainly inform it, but it's also contained within the Lord of the Rings itself. So actually, the next line, Faramir then replies to Sam and then says, Then she must be lovely indeed, said Faramir, perilously fair. And Sam replies, and he kind of disagrees. He says, I don't know about perilous, said Sam. It strikes me that folk takes their peril with them into Lorien and finds it there because they've brought it, but perhaps you could call her perilous because she's so strong in herself. You, you could dash yourself to pieces on her, like a ship on a rock, or drown yourself like a hobbit in a river, but neither the rock nor river would be to blame. Which is really interesting, and a really interesting imagery, but there is something in her beauty that has a kind of temptation in it danger yeah there is a perilousness to it and so i was reading i got a, a lovely book from actually chloe who's been on this podcast before called the gospel according to tolkien and it's it had this really interesting take on it which said galadriel's remarkable beauty and holiness expose her to unique temptation she could become deadly in her beauty a prospect that late modernity with its virtual worship of gorgeousness can scarcely comprehend Tolkien expressed alarm, in fact, that our world finds it difficult to conceive of evil and beauty together. The fear of the beautiful Fay that through the Elder Ages almost eludes our grasp. And then it says, If she pressed its coercive power, she confesses her loveliness would become binding rather than inviting. Everyone would bow down and adore her beauty, subjecting their wills to her, thus putting an end to all liberty and true beauty. Hence her stern response to the offer of the ring. And now at last it comes, you will give me the ring freely. In place of a dark lord, you will set up a queen. And I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and night. Fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain. Dreadful as the storm and the lightning. Which, first of all, is very like the quote from Song of Solomon that we quoted earlier. But really interesting that beauty can be almost overreaching. And when it imposes, it's not free liberty. Which is a really interesting look at how god treats humanity and how he came as a man because he didn't want to force our hand by coming as god because if we saw him as god we would, we all... would just we would have no more free will yeah exactly <laughs> so true he comes in the
1: hidden uh, hidden ways and simple ways um and it just made me think while you're reading that of the whole idea of like the femme fatale you know like the deadly woman with her lipstick gun and like yeah, yeah know, exactly like, and she's like, irresistible she's so irresistible and she'll kill you when she's done with you kind of like the idea yeah. of like the spider woman mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not, I'm like um but i i think that's really really interesting and i think it really shows and what he says about the modern world not being able to see beauty and evil as something that often goes together is very interesting because yeah. there is an adoration of beauty especially for women now i think of all the advertising and pressure placed on women in the modern world to be beautiful and mm-hmm. to conform to a standard of beauty that the world has decided upon. Yeah, And it's that if you are not beautiful, you have no worth. That is basically what yeah. the world
0: tells us as women. And, and that, what he's saying is that true beauty can only come with goodness. Yeah. And the context of that particular chapter that I was reading from there was saying that how the ring has its evil but that the evil tempts you to virtue not vice and particularly in these scenes so you've got that line from gandalf don't tempt me frodo i would use this ring to do good but through me it would wield a power too terrible and great to imagine so and it's the same with galadriel and so she wants to protect her kingdom and she wants to have that power to protect her people and she could move to take the ring. And again, like she said, set herself up as a queen that has this power to defend and protect and to increase her own stature and increase the stature of her people. But that that would require sacrificing. You can't achieve a good by doing evil. Right. And so it's a really powerful moment. And when you know the, the wider context, you also know that when she lets him go, According to the Silmarillion, she actually, because of actions that she was caught up in, she has a ban from going to Valinor, so she can't just take a boat across the sea. And so if the ring is lost and is given to the Dark Lord, not only will she have to then withstand the Dark Lord, but she knows that there's no relief or escape and it's it's the end of her people and the end of her. And she, she talks about, we will become a rustic folk, which when you think of Lorien, and the majesty, like we said, the majesty of that, and saying, oh, we will become rustic. And that choice to do the right thing, even at the cost of her own stature, her own people, her own kingdom, is such a powerful example of choosing good over Your immediate good, almost. And such a Marian example as well, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's the kind of fiat, voluntas,
1: like, let it be done to me according to your word. I will not do something that puts my will against what should be done. In the sense, I will not choose Mm -hmm. the greater power, the greater glory. I -hmm. will say yes, I will accept what is happening, and I will help as much as I can. But I'm not going to place myself as the
0: as the ultimate end. Which I think brings us right into Eowyn great because that is the opposite of what Eowyn does. Yeah,
1: oh yeah this is good. Eowyn, I just want to say that I had a long time trying to convince my husband to name our second daughter who we're expecting at the moment Eowyn but (laughs) he was originally in agreement he's a big Tolkien nerd as well but he said no eventually because he thought our child would have too much to carry with (laughs) the weight of such a nerdy name but anyway, so She, she although she is an incredibly flawed character she's also someone that I identify with very much and has actually helped me in a lot of hard personal moments. Whenever something is, is very hard for me, I imagine myself literally putting on the armour of Eowyn mm-hmm. and walking out into the field That's... to do battle with whichever dragon I have to face. So yeah, if you want to criticise Tolkien for not including strong, incredible women, then you should really decide that Eowyn never existed.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was going to say that. I think, to me, Eowyn is one of the most powerfully crafted female characters that I've ever read and
1: done in such a scarcity of words and
0: yeah like done in such an incredibly it's so concise neuron.
1: like oh it's incredible how he does it yeah but she's it's
0: so real it's uh, not that she has endless pages no she just has these moments and in these moments he tells so much. And so just to revise that she's the shield maiden and she's spent so many years minding Theoden as he sort of descended into kind of... Her
1: uncle, the king of Rohan.
0: Yeah, as, as he's descended into decrepitness through the machinations of Wormtongue and Saruman. And once he's kind of free, this coincides with her meeting Aragorn and it stirs within her because it's interesting. It does actually say, Eomer, her brother, says... Aragorn describes her as being like touched by a frost, and Aemir says she had not been touched by a frost until she saw you. So the two things are very linked, but she kind of has this real defiance at having to have been this carer and having to stay in this particular role. And so she's yearning and desiring and has this deep seated desire to be part of the fight, be a warrior, and do great to be a deeds. Hero. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that. I think some criticisms say that in order to achieve her destiny, she has to to pretend to be a man. Because that's what she does. She dresses up as a man and then she enters into the fight. But I think they're really missing the actual criticism that Tolkien kind of has of her. And it's not to say, he's not saying that she is incapable of fighting. On the contrary, I mean, she's the one that
1: saves... Her uncle at the last moment. I know he's already doomed, but she's the one that slays the, the king of the Nazgul. Yeah. Like, I mean, and
0: it describes her as like slender and as firm as steel, like that moment where she stands up to no the Nazgul. <laughs> yeah, it's not that she doesn't have a physical capability of doing it. It's not that she is lacking in courage or in any of the virtues that Tolkien gives to men traditionally yeah. at all.
1: Like she has all of those things and more. Like she's a hero. She's noble. Yes. Yeah.
0: And so Tolkien isn't saying that women don't have a place on the battlefield because all women, all women are physically incapable of being there. But he is saying that, first of all, I think there's a really interesting indictment of battle in there. Because he went through World War I. And if you really understand World War I, you understand it as the moment when the glamour of war failed. That it wasn't a heroic moment. It wasn't wasn't
1: meeting on a battlefield with your claymore and your tartan swirling in the breeze. And, you know, like, hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. I know that kind of warfare is not idealistic either. But it was no longer personal. It was... slaughterhouse yeah and And so
0: in some ways because of that he saw all war for what it really was so while that was the kind of example where people lost their idealized version of war but he kind of looks at it retrospectively almost and says well war essentially has always been like that this is just on such a mass scale but also that war especially World War One was literally just about who can outdo the other in terms of body count the only reason you were there were to be one body alive or dead up on the other person you know how long can you withstand by just throwing people at this it was such a carnage you we just can't even comprehend the idea of how many people were lost every single day in in world war one and i thought it was really interesting that this actually going back to what the once and future king podcast that i i've been kind of referencing is that th white has this really interesting take on it as well which informs it which says something of the new ideal of the round table which was to be born in pain something about doing a hateful and dangerous action for the sake of decency for they knew that the fight was to be fought in blood and death without reward they would get nothing but the unmarketable conscience of having done what they ought to do in spite of fear something which wicked people have often debased by calling it glory with too much sentiment but which is glory all the same. Mm. So obviously that's T.H. White and not Tolkien, but they share that kind of sentiment, which is that it is glorious. There is a nobility in laying down your life for the things that you love, but the experience of it is not glorious. Mm. And so she has this desire to be part of that. And I think it's really interesting that people see this as saying, well, she wants to not be in the role of a woman. She wants to step out and not just be at home. But that wasn't actually what she was being asked to do. She was being asked to be the leader of everyone who remained, the she, steward of her
1: people. She was being asked to lead them to safety, to um, to basically rule in in the place of of all the men who had to go to war. And, yeah, and that's it is interesting from Tolkien's experience as well because who was left behind during the war? The women, mm-hmm. and who kept everything going during the war? The women. Mm-hmm. So he, I think, he probably had a deeper appreciation for that than maybe some modern people have that. There is such a thing as different roles in different times. And sometimes we can idealise one and forget the importance of the other. And yeah. that's the problem. Not not that there are different roles. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's just the way we see them. And so she's given this duty in the two towers. And then it, it's supposed to continue on into the return of the king until she kind of defies it. But Hama, who's Theodin's kind of right-hand man, suggests that she should... Be the leader, so he says. She is fearless and high-hearted. All love her. Let her be as lord to the Eorlingas while we are gone. It shall be so, said Theoden. Let the heralds announce to the folk that the Lady Eowyn will lead them. Like that's no.
1: She's not staying home to be, you know, a stay-at-home mom. Sorry, but like,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's she... n- that's no lowly position. No, and so what she's really infuriated about is the fact that she's not allowed to fight it's not about not having status it's not about not having power mission or power because she she has the power over all of her people and so it's it's not about that it's only about the fact that she wants to be part of these glorious deeds and to be remembered so actually coming back to that book that i mentioned earlier the gospel according to tolkien it has this section which is talking about prudence and imprudence So it says to lack prudence and wisdom is to act foolishly and thoughtlessly, seeking merely one's own good rather than the good of friends and the larger community. Tolkien deftly discloses such imprudence at work in the otherwise admirable character of Eowyn. She chafes at the restrictions that her gender has forced upon her. She does not want to be relegated to the role of protector and steward in the absence of King Theoden and his warriors. She possesses the bravery of even the most valiant men, and she wants it to be fully realised and recognised in her role as shield maiden. And then it has this extended quote, but I think it's such an important quote that I, I do want to quote it in full. So This is between Aragorn and Eowyn. Aragorn is about to head out onto what everyone else perceives as a suicide mission to walk the paths of the dead. And Eowyn is begging to go with him. And he says, "'Your duty is with your people,' he answered. "'Too often have I heard of duty,' she cried. "'Am I not of the house of Eorl? "'A shield maiden and not a dry nurse. "'I have waited on faltering feet long enough. "'Since they falter no longer, it seems,' May I not now spend my life as I will? Few may do that with honour, he answered. But as for you, lady, did you not accept the charge to govern the people until their lord's return? If you had not been chosen, then some marshal or captain would have been sent in the same place, and he could not ride away from his charge, were he weary of it or no. Shall I always be chosen, she said bitterly? Shall I always be left behind when the riders depart, to mind the house while they win renown, and to find food and beds when they return. A time may come, he said, when none will return. Then there will be need of valour without renown, for none shall remember the deeds that are done in the last defence of your homes. Yet the deeds will not be the less valiant, because they are unpraised. And she answered, All your words are but to say you are a woman, and your part is in the house. But when the men have died in battle and honour, you have leave to be burned in the house." for the men will need it no more. But I am of the house of Aor and not a serving woman. I can ride and wield blade and I do not fear either pain or death. What do you fear, lady? He asked. A cage, she said, to stay behind bars until use and old age accept them. And all chance of doing great deeds is beyond recall or desire. And then the, the commentary from the Gospel According to Tolkien comes back in and says, a contemporary feminist could hardly make a more impassioned case for the liberation of women from their traditional roles. And Tolkien is evidently sympathetic. I think we'll come back to the rest of that quote, but I just think to take a moment for us to discuss that, that's such an incredible... Like, there is a criticism in there. She is seeking only her own good. There is a failing in her own vanity. But that can't have been written by someone who did not at least sympathise and understand that desire and even see it as something that has a noble beginning and that has a noble fulfillment as well like i mean when she does
1: leave and mm-hmm. when she does go and you know defy her duty as aragorn so wisely put it she she does great deeds mm-hmm. and she accomplishes great things but she's not fulfilled and she's not happy
0: well i also think that there's a really interesting point that i read which was saying that the her slaying the nazgûl it's an example of the justice of God that comes in the form of mercy, so that she is when she's
1: made a choice that's not necessarily the most noble or the best,
0: yeah, that God grants her the mercy, good. and obviously God in our sense is outside of the world of middle earth, but that sense that there is a force that allows her to do something great and truly great and noble uh but it's almost kind of in spite of her own failings. Yeah, and it's it's only after the deed and only after she is like
1: grievously hurt and has to go to the houses of healing mm-hmm. that she starts to accept for herself her role as steward and as guardian and as as she's healed in the houses of healing in Gondor and she meets Faramir who is mm-hmm. who but the steward of Gondor, right? After yeah. the death of his father. And and she realizes that this is the man she loves and it's not Aragorn because she never loved Aragorn as a man. She mm-hmm. loved him as a figure, yeah. as a figurehead. She needs to come to the realization that she does have a specific place in the world. She does have a specific role and she is free to choose it or not to choose it. But in choosing it, she finds healing and peace and fulfillment. Yeah, And that that, I think, is the crux of the matter because our roles and our duty and our places, I'm speaking both as men and women, should never be imposed upon us. They should never be something that we have to suffer because when we're suffering them, we become bitter and we become incapable of fulfilling them. We become, you know, truncated versions of what we could be. And that doesn't mean that they don't exist anymore. I think today's society, like, doesn't understand that we all have things that we have to do. I mean, Mm -hmm. on one level, we do understand that because everybody knows they have to go to work so they can pay the bills. Like, I mean, that's reality. And if you don't, if you defy that, step out of that, well, sorry, like you're gonna end up homeless or, you know, like worse, you know, like you have to fulfill certain stereotypes or certain obligations, but you can do it in any way you choose. You can do it in a bitter resisting way, or you can do it in a fulfilled understanding way, which is what I think is is deep down vocation as well, right? Yeah. Because we're all called to different roles and different duties, and and I'm not saying that there is a set role for women and a set role for men at all, but I am saying that there's such a thing as as duty and role
0: mm-hmm. and
1: belonging and and calling, and there's such a thing as obligation. Yeah. And we have to be able to choose that obligation, or else we won't fulfill it. And um, also
0: that she, because as Aragorn describes there's a whole wealth of men who are elderly perhaps or children or women who are left behind and do they not deserve the kind of strong protector that Eowyn is?
1: Right who are they left with? Exactly. That question is never answered and like I mean speaking as a stay-at-home mom I can really identify with her because I can live my life in one of two ways. I can say, oh, I'm being forced to not do anything with my life because I have a kid and I need to take care of her. And yeah. I am bound to her diaper changing and yeah. her nap time. Or I can say, this is my choice because this is this is love and this is fulfillment. And this is the way that God has made for me to become a shield maiden to do great things you know (laughs) so
0: yeah and it's really telling that so both Aragorn says in that segment that like he doesn't go into battle for renown but because he has to do it he is it is out of duty that he goes on this quest and it's interesting then that she falls in love later with Faramir and Faramir's (laughs) famous well but also he's the he's the one with that famous quote that says I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend.
1: And that is beautiful, because that, that goes into, like, the understanding that you were talking about earlier as well to me, about Tolkien's understanding of what is actually greater. Is it is it glory? Is it nobility? Is it high, bright, sparkling elven kingdoms? Or is it the Shire. You yeah. Know? Is I it the was, everyday? It's the every day. Yeah, yeah that, you go with that, Rachel, because I thought that was a really good point. Well,
0: today. it kind of struck me. It was in the context of some other things that I was reading, but that he is saying that in some ways there is a truth to say that, you know, she should want to be at home. But in some ways that's because his reflection is that everyone should want to be. And that the only reason you would go out to fight and the only reason that you should want to be engaged in these battles and these quote-unquote heroic deeds is because they are in, in defence of Of a better life and that better life is the life at home for both men and women the
1: hobbits seem to have their priorities a bit more straight in this regard so yeah all they want is to get home to their strawberries in the shire like that's all they want but
0: that's exactly it so in some ways we have this very uh, polarized notion of the roles of men and women and men go to work and women stay home but that conception only really came in the industrial revolution and for the most part before that. Everyone was in the society together and it was a more agricultural community. So the family cultivated their plot. The family, which yeah. meant everyone, was part of this this ebb and flow of life. And you really see that in the Shire. So the Shire is essentially the kind of idealised landscape. I know we have the elven kingdoms and things like that, but the place that everyone wants to return to is the oh, Shire. Yeah. And so you look at the Shire and you think, well, if you say, quote unquote, the this place for women is at the home. And what does that mean? Well, it means all of the kind of standard curating a household and and a garden and food and things like that. But in the Shire, Sam is a gardener. Mary cooks food. They all cook food. They're obsessed with food. (laughs) But they're all part of this life that to us moderns now... If you laid out, like, the kind of daily tasks of a hobbit, a a male hobbit, they would look very similar to the kind of stereotypical tasks that we would assign to women in the home. And
1: it's, like, it's so frustrating as a woman in the home. Like, I recently ran into one of my husband's workmates, and she was asking me if I was working or if I was planning to go back to work, and I just said, at the moment, no, I'm, I'm, like, taking care of my kids. And I felt this kind of overwhelming desire to justify mm-hmm. why I had chosen to stay at home and I, I said something kind of vague and stupid about not having to pay childcare. and I was thinking about it afterwards and I just realized how deeply our culture yeah. does not value someone who chooses to nurture with their time and mm-hmm. to, to care and to do simple little like tiny tasks
0: yeah instead of you know having a career or and and so the thing is is that like we said it's not that Eowyn has to fit this ideal of what we mean by, like, a woman in the home. She's a shield maiden. She has a Capacity. She has capacity and a position. She's organising her people. She is... A leader. It's not like women
1: cannot be leaders. They must be hobbit women. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: But Tolkien is making this comment that, you know... Men are out in we're going to say quote unquote the world, but they should only be doing that because they absolutely have to in defense to protect of protect
1: their home <laughs>
0: and and in the best version of the world they would all be home. So it's not about calling women out into again the world. It's about a retreat back for yeah. everyone to the the real true life, which is in these small communities and in the building of relationships and in the sustainable small beauty of somewhere like the shire and it's so it's not an indictment of women to say well you know you should be at home but rather that he recognizes that for the most part women have the opportunity to maintain these kinds of worlds and that's such a precious dignified role that they shouldn't be distracted by say the glamour of war
1: yeah but it is true that when you allow discontent to grow in your heart that's why i think aon is so masterful because Yes, yes, all of these ideas, they're true, and we can see what Tolkien's trying to say. But at the same time, it's also true that discontent and bitterness and a desire to leave a a physical mark or a, um, a memorable mark on the world are all things that can enter into our hearts, especially when we're engaged in things that we consider to be small or trivial or not important. And that's why it's so beautiful because he acknowledges that that feeling, that temptation to greatness is always present in our, in our condition, especially as women. Um, I think because we are, can often be in roles that seem more trivial, at least, Mm -hmm. I mean, when it comes to childminding and taking care of a family, like if you are a woman who has kids, you will be engaged in trivial tasks.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Let me just tell you that right now. And I'm sure your husband will as well, hopefully. (laughs) But, but what I'm saying is like, there will be a lot of stuff that no one's ever going to remember. Like, Nobody wants to talk about how many poopy diapers you changed in one day. Like, nobody. (laughs) Except for your
0: husband. (laughs) He needs some credit, too. But anyway. um, I think we're going to have to... We could talk about Eowyn all day, but we're already running long on this. So I'm going to make one really short point and another kind of duo of women that feature in these stories. And then we'll move on to Arwen. But I'll make this point really quickly. Which is that there is actually a female villainess in the story. And that she also has a prefigurement in the Silmarillion. And that is... Shellop.
1: Ah! I had not thought of her as a woman. <laughs> uh,
0: well, because she yes. specifically characterises she. And I think it's really oh, interesting. Yeah. The spiders in The Hobbit are all it. Now... To me, they sound more masculine anyway, but they're only ever described as they or it. Mm-hmm. And also... I mean, some, her name is She. Yeah, She-lob. I actually read a horrific
1: article about this in college, but I mean, okay. <laughs> but like female genitalian spiders. I, and yeah. I think I saw
0: some of that. <laughs> Someone's actually, a couple of people have pointed out that it says that she is most like a spider. So she she's not even quite a spider. And it's the same with, so like I said, there's that kind of concentric circle of going down. Ungoliant. In, yeah, Ungoliant is the previous one who was even bigger and more powerful and more evil and she takes the form of a spider she comes from the darkness She's that lies
1: spirits or a force
0: yeah it's the darkness i think before the creation of the world she emerges mm. and so there's these two spiders and the thing that i'm going to say about them very quickly is that they're actually to me anyway the inverse of galadriel mm. ungoliant is born of darkness and because of that she has this insatiable desire to consume light and in that, she also, in the Silmarillion, and the Silmarillion is so named because a big part of the story is about three jewels that were created called the Silmarils. Ungoliant wants to devour the Silmarils. And the Silmarils are so beautiful because they contain the light of the two trees of Valinor. One is gold and one is silver. But they were actually inspired by Galadriel's hair. So Galadriel is from two different races of elves and so her hair has this combination of silver and gold that is said to be perfect and is said to evoke the light of the trees and her cousin Feanor was inspired by her hair to make the Silmarils. Oh wow. Right? So she is kind of the light and Ungoliant is the devouring. Right? Which I think is so so interesting and also just to note that Galadriel is one of two elves left in Middle Earth who have seen the light of the tree. So the other is Glorfindel. Mm. And then her hair, which is very important then when it comes to Gimli getting the gift of her hair, because she refuses that to Feanor. And Feanor was inspired with the very idea of imprisoning or blending the light of the two trees. But Ungoliant drinks the sap of the trees of light and becomes enormous. But the idea is, it never quite tells you what happens to her, but it suggested that she is so insatiable that she devours herself Whereas, like we were saying earlier, that Galadriel lays down everything. Mm. And that also, Galadriel learns how to make Lambus bread from another figure who's from the Valar cult, Melian. But that Galadriel is the one who distributes food and creates food. The Lambus being kind of a symbol, some people have said, of the Eucharist. Of the Eucharist. So a truly sustaining food. Mm. So she's the one that distributes this true nutrition so, of heaven, yeah. whereas Ungolian devours it. And then you get into Shelob, or Shelob, the quote which describes Shelob, and it is telling that Shelob is cast back by the light of the Silmaril, the Silmaril which is which the star in the sky. It's given, yeah, yeah, so given to Sam. Or given to In the file. So it is this showdown essentially of Galadriel versus Shelob and so the description of Shelob is she served none but herself drinking the blood of elves and men bloated and grown fat with endless brooding on her feasts weaving webs of shadow for all living things were her food and her vomit darkness But her lust was not Gollum's lust. Little she knew or cared for towers or rings or anything devised by mind or hand, who only desired death for all others, mind and body, and for herself a glut of life, alone, swollen, until the mountains could no longer hold her up and the darkness could not contain her. Wow. So again you have that because she only cares about eating. It's
1: taking life instead of giving
0: life, and mm-hmm. that's kind
1: of like the turning on its head of femininity of womanness. Right? Yeah,
0: and whereas Galadriel is both concerned with the whole world and her own kingdom, she does care about towers. She does care about enough rings. to
1: give her life so she can give life. <laughs> so yeah, it's like exactly. A, it's a complete opposite. And
0: whereas we were talking with Galadriel about the danger of too much beauty, which with Shelob we're seeing the horror of like an evil being in its most it it describes her as flabby Mm. and like sort of putrefied Mm. and so she on the complete opposite spectrum so i just think it's really interesting that there are that kind of duality between the Mm. two and i thought that was really interesting but then unfortunately we have to keep moving like i said to my (laughs) friend there's so much you can talk about but to round off i think we're going to talk about arwen and To understand Arwen, you kind of have to understand her in the light of Beren and Luthien. And it's also important to understand that the story of Beren and Luthien is probably the most important story story to Tolkien, at least emotionally, which was that it represented him and his wife. And he used to refer to them as Beren and Luthien, and on their graves it says Beren and Luthien. And the initial love story, that moment where Beren sees Luthien dancing in a grove of hemlock and singing is inspired by a real event that happened with him and his soon-to-be wife, or I think actually it was just after they were newly wed. The fact that Arwen is a descendant of Luthien is very telling because it indicates the kind of respect and love that he has for her.
1: And for Aragorn as well. Because, yeah. I mean, Aragorn gets to marry her, so. <laughs> But I, I just think, I mean, the, whole, the, the crux of those two stories lie in the fact that it's a, a gift of self, a taking on of mortality, of weakness, of death. Mm -hmm. so that the other will live and so that they can be together
0: and i think we underestimate because in some ways it's not quite as drawn out and as explained in the story i mean the whole story of aragorn and arwen is in the appendices like he tried to fit it into the narrative of the story a bunch of times and he just couldn't and in fact when i was researching this i had pdfs of the books open and i searched for arwen in the two towers and the word Arwen is not in there. <laughs> so yeah. she's really only a marginal figure in the actual stories, but that doesn't mean because he he gives her this legacy, it gives a kind of weight to her character that is so important. So I don't know if you want you, you read both <laughs> I read the Silmarillion version and Maria read the Silmarillion and the newly released Baron and Luthian book, which goes through the different stages of the story's development.
1: Yeah, it was it's quite interesting because it has slightly different versions throughout, um, as Tolkien wrote it. Mm -hmm. So Beren and Luthien, Beren is, in the final version that makes it into the Silmarillion, he is a mortal man who falls in love with an elf, not just an elf, an elf princess. He's dancing in the forest. And um, there's my daughter, crying. (laughs) So do you want to keep telling the story? Yeah, sure.
0: So he meets her in the realm of her father and her mother, and and falls in love with her there, but essentially has to make an oath that he will not marry her until he has taken the Silmaril, which we've talked about earlier, and presented it to her father, Um, which has a kind of doom around it. There is essentially a kind of curse on those who would try to claim the Silmarils for themselves. And so it begins this really tragic story where he bound by this oath and even when they have a first attempt and it fails and luthien kind of says we can wander the world without the the oath fulfilled and we, we can essentially run from the oath that you made which will mean that you will probably live longer or that we can try again and to claim the silmaril and so take on this dangerous task and it's so heartbreaking and it's such an incredible story and the description again it's quite a marian image luthien is described as black hair and dressed in blue which i think most catholics will recognize as the typical description or the typical statue of our lady and i've got the quote here so it says for luthien was the most beautiful of all the children of Iluvatar. blue was her raiment as the unclouded heaven But her eyes were grey as starlit evening, her mantle was sown with golden flowers, but her hair was dark as the shadows of twilight, as the light upon the leaves of the trees, as the voice of clear waters, as the stars above the mists of the world, such was her glory and her loveliness, and in her face was a shining light. And then when you get to the story of Aragorn and Arwen, when Aragorn sees her, he she says, I thought I had wandered into a dream because I was singing the lay of Luthien, and then essentially Luthien appeared before me, I saw you when you looked like Luthien, and Arwen says, I, I've heard that before, she is my ancestor. And so this image of her as the kind of, beautiful luthien is so important but it also conveys her doom because she follows like i've been saying this whole podcast she follows that trope of duplicating a story that was held on on a grander scale beforehand and so she accepts in order to be with aragorn just as luthien she has to accept the mortality of men and like i said this is kind of explained in the lord of the rings but there is a little bit more information in the silmarillion which says that the elves can dwell in the land of Valinor in essentially a kind of eternal bliss and they can stay there forever. But that actually doesn't make it heaven and that death is actually described as the gift that the god who is in the world of Middle-earth, it's the gift that he gives to men. Because when they die... They can move to this plane that's closer to God, that is heaven, that as we would understand it. And so when elves give up their immortality, it means that they will never rejoin any of their family, any of their loved ones who dwell in Valinor. Her loved ones will never die, and so they will never reach heaven. And so it is a permanent separation. And there's so much that you have to give up, and so much that you have to forsake in order to follow this love that it is more profound when you kind of put it in that context that there is a huge act of trust and of love that comes into saying yes to this relationship and I think I actually think the film does it really well when it has Elrond is sort of describing what her life will be like if she chooses to stay and it is that truly heartbreaking moment where it says you will wander the the world and become but a shadow but I think it's really really beautiful and I also think that I was reading an article which was really berating the films for having Arwen conduct the the ride with Frodo to Rivendell to save him from the Nazgul. And I understand wanting to be protective of the story. And also, I, I have several friends who really, really love the character of Glorfindel, so you kind of miss out on that. But as we said earlier, the character of Arwen is so peripheral to the actual plot but she's so integral to the motivation of Aragorn that you have to find a way of building her into the story or else it kind of doesn't make sense, it won't resonate with an audience. So first of all, from a purely film storytelling point of view, I think it works really well. The other thing is that Luthien is not the totally gentle and meek and helpless character that you might think when you think of a a perfect woman because she both rescues Beren by entering the lair of Morgoth and entering the realm of evil and using her power to free Beren and then like I said he has this choice to go back and they do and she she's the one that stands before Morgoth and withstands his evil in order that they can try to carry out this mission. So in the first case I I believe that she it's actually the stronghold of Sauron first and then they move on to Morgoth but I could be wrong like I said I really needed to refresh myself on the story from the Silmarillion but it says that then Sauron yielded himself, and Luthien took mastery of the isle and all that was there. Then Luthien stood upon the bridge and declared her power, and the spell was loose that bound stone to stone, and the gates were thrown down, and the walls opened, and the pits laid bare, and the many thralls and captives come forth in wonder and dismay. And then in the second case it says for they came to the seat of Morgoth in his nethermost hall, that was upheld by horror, lit by fire, and filled with weapons of death and torment. Luthien was stripped of her disguise by the will of Morgoth, and he bent his gaze upon her. She was not daunted by his gaze, and she named her own name, and offered service to sing before him after the manner of a minstrel. Then Morgoth looked upon her beauty, and conceived in his thought an evil lust and a design more dark than any that had come into his heart since he fled from Valinor. So the idea that Luthien, and in her parallel Arwen, doesn't have this ability to call on power and to withstand evil and to brave the deepest horrors, I I think it is still fitting within her character. And I think in, in that light, you can see it as a really powerful moment of Arwen standing before the Nazgul and saying, you know, if you want him, come and claim him. But yeah, I think the story of Lúthien really illuminates more of the depth of the love of Aragorn and Arwen and the extent to which she sacrifices her family and her heritage and her people in order to make this leap of love with Aragorn and with the age of men Okay, so we've got the baby down for about five minutes more. <laughs> we definitely we, <laughs> we definitely ran way too long on this <laughs> on this topic. Maybe we'll come back to it. I certainly want to do more Tolkien topics, but I hope you enjoyed it, and yeah, I'm excited to have this first Tolkien episode of the podcast, so I'm very happy. Oh, I am too, don't worry. <laughs> Who knows,
1: maybe we'll get our third daughter named after Ao and her Lucian. You know, fingers crossed. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> but just to round up the episode and before we get another Screaming Child out, we better do our usual. What are you enjoying at the moment, Maria?
1: What am I enjoying at the moment? I am enjoying planning for this weekend because I have my best friend from when I was small and her five children coming up for the weekend to stay a night in our two-bedroom house. <laughs> so we're going to be doing a picnic and a party because her youngest is turning one. So I'm just really looking forward to hosting. And I know it's very immediate, but I get excited about it. Immediate, so yeah, um, I'm making a birthday cake and just just trying to make it a really memorable, fun experience for these kids. so um,
0: Living the good small life, exactly, as, as we've been talking about. Um, I think for me, well, first of all, I'm going to say in preparation for yet another podcast that's coming up, I've been reading a lot more of Ronald Knox and specifically his, uh, and this will give away something, the murder mysteries, wow. and they're they're so really well written, really funny. I had no idea how. Fun and funny they were going to be, so I've been really enjoying that. And the other thing I want to give a shout out to is, if you did enjoy this podcast, I'd really recommend uh, Tea with Tolkien. She's on. Oh yeah. She's on Instagram. She's on Twitter, and maybe most importantly, she's also on Etsy. Oh she, yeah,
1: she does. She, she her shop is closed down for the moment, but I think she has a pop up shop.
0: Um, yeah. And, so she does like Tolkien inspired books as well and all kinds of paraphernalia and she's great and she has her own podcast on all things Tolkien so I thought I'd just... She's the
1: expert if you want Tolkien.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I thought we'd just give a little shout out to her and I guess that'll be it for this time so thanks very much for joining us. As usual please do rate, subscribe, send us a review, send me a message on Instagram or Twitter or anything like that and uh, because we'd really love to hear from any of our listeners and other than that, I think we just have to say goodbye. See you next time. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.